0: Welcome to Living Word Bible Church, a lovely place for families where we have a passion to sing great songs to Jesus and where sound Bible teaching is central in home groups and in preaching at Sundays. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven Golden stands I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot connect, tolerate, but that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come you hate the practices of the of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which, in, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Everyone, it's great to be here again. I can't remember. I think it was that's Montaz and I uh, did the pulpit swap as we're doing again today. I think Montaz has already gone, but um, I I think I'll probably catch the end of Montaz's sermon after this when I go back to Bethel Christian Church. Uh, It's great to have that fellowship uh, between our churches, and uh, I'll see you running Alpha in May. We're also running a similar kind of program in May. Uh, The one we're running is called The Authentic Life. Uh, So that's good to know, isn't it, that the word is going out and uh, we'll we'll pray for you that uh, people will draw, uh, God will draw people to to Alpha. Uh, I also only heard this week too about Nick Hawks' passing. So I pray that I know that he's very uh, dear to many of you, so I pray that you know God's comfort in that. Um, I never met Nick, but a couple of years ago, one evening my phone rang. I looked at my phone and it said, Dr. Nick Hawkes. I thought, didn't even know I had his number in my phone. I don't know how it ended up in my phone, but he was calling me um, because he heard that I was involved with uni student ministry. And he said, you know, before I depart, I'm writing this book and I just want to run past some things past you to say, to see how would this sound to you know the younger generation? So I was quite honoured with that. Um, did, did he finish the book? You know, it was. It, it, I got the impression it was you know everything that he had learnt over his years of ministry in terms of apologetics. Uh, he wanted to just get down there and get in a book and get it out there. So um, I'm not sure if he actually ended up finishing that or not. But. Anyway, uh, here we are, we're in Revelation 2 at, at, at Bethel Christian Church, uh, we're taking a journey through the book of Revelation, and uh, we've just finished a section on the seven churches, uh, I said to Montaz, uh, which of the seven churches would you like me to preach on the Living Word Bible Church, and he's, he didn't tell me which one, so uh, this is the one that I trust that the Lord um, has led for us to look at, uh, the church in Ephesus notice some uh, some background Uh, revelation the book of revelation is made up of seven visions Uh, each vision gives us a perspective on the person of jesus because it is the revelation of jesus christ and each of the visions in revelation also contains a group of seven so the seven churches the seven seals the seven trumpets the seven bowls and so on So this structure of uh, seven, lots of seven, communicates to us by using the number seven, that idea of divine perfection that's revealed in and through the person of Jesus. So the seven churches uh, shows us how Jesus' perfection, divine perfection, is revealed in the way that he deals with uh, his church. Uh, now, each, each of the letters uh, has roughly the same structure as, uh, there on the first, first slide. Uh, they, the church is reminded of an aspect of uh, the vision that John had of Jesus in chapter 1, which they particularly need to remind themselves of for their situation. He tells them what he knows about them and their context, whether that's good or bad. He tells them if he has something against them, a a critique of their church. He calls them to respond to what he says by repentance or by continuing on in their faithfulness. Uh, And he gives a warning of judgments that will happen if they don't repent. Uh, In some of the letters he foretells something that they should expect to happen in the future as he continues to work among them. And then he concludes with a promise for the conquerors, the one who conquers, that will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Now it's important that we understand what is meant by the phrase, the one who conquers, it's there in verse, uh, verse 7. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. These promises to the one who conquers, they they have a future focus. They're they're looking forward because they speak of the fullness of kingdom life that will ultimately only be experienced in the new heavens and the new earth. But the tense of the word for overcome is present, meaning it's something that is true of God's people today. It's not that we will become conquerors if we hang on to the end. It's saying that we already are conquerors. Now, knowing that present truth, that we are conquerors now, enables us to face hardship. We have a sense of hope, as Romans 8:35, 37 tells us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are, present tense, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Being a conqueror is what it means to be a Christian. All Christians are conquerors it's not just a special super class of christians we've been united to jesus who has conquered our enemies of sin and death and the devil so there's actually no such thing as a defeated christian we may feel defeated at times but the full reality is that we can actually never step out or fall out of the victory that Jesus has won for us. Uh, next slide. The, the phrase, the one who conquers, it really is a description of Jesus himself, first and foremost. He's the first conqueror who's received uh, everything that he has as a reward of his victory from his Father. So our victory as conquerors isn't of our own doing, it's the victory that Christ has given to us as we are included in him, as we are in Christ. Revelation 12, 10 to 11 says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and... They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. Now in this passage here we see a principle called imputation, where something that belongs to Christ is freely credited to us, even though we've done nothing to achieve it or to earn it. See how it says that, they have conquered him the accuser the devil as if they have done it yet how have they done it not their actions the blood of the lamb christ's actions at the cross and the only thing that they do do this is talking about us the only thing we do is speak of what he has done the word of their testimony and Surrender our lives. We love not our lives even unto death. They're actions that aren't, they're not actually achieving anything, are they? They they just highlight Christ's achievements. They're expressions of the security that comes from the guaranteed hope that we have in, in Jesus. Now this victory isn't what the world calls victory, is it? We proclaim a Gospel of a crucified Saviour. As we heard uh, earlier, You know, Psalm 22, Jesus at the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bearing sin, in humility, in weakness. That's a message that's foolishness. It's a stumbling block to those who don't believe. And because it's considered a foolish, offensive message by the world, those who follow and serve jesus who was crucified will face opposition and persecution for us the ultimate victory isn't in whether we live or die whether we prosper or suffer but whether in both in life and in death as paul says in philippians 1 for me to live is christ and to die is gain that's the victory so to summarize uh, three points out of that Jesus is the one who has conquered through his humble obedience to the father's will even to death on the cross where sin and death and the devil were defeated secondly as a reward he has been raised up and he's received his full inheritance from the father a kingdom all nations creation everything has been given to him by the father and thirdly because he's done that as the son of man as the last adam representing us he now freely shares all of that fullness with us as we're one with him through faith peter puts it this way in 1 peter 1 according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by god's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time is that what motivates you to live for christ if not what does. You may have heard of the image of the uh, carrot and the stick. The farmer wants to get his stubborn donkey to move. He could use one of two methods. He could either hit the donkey from behind with a stick so the donkey moves forward to avoid the pain or dangle a carrot in front of the donkey so it moves forward to get the reward been used uh, often to describe the different methods we might use in parenting or teaching or business or or government. Now we might try to apply either of those analogies to these uh, letters and say that Jesus is using one or the other to try and get the churches to toe the line. Either the threat of judgment moving us forward by our desire for self-preservation, we don't want to be judged, or the enticement of reward, motivating us by our our desire for self-gratification. I want to do this because I'll get good things out of it. Neither of those motivations is biblical. Interestingly, human behavioural experts have acknowledged that while These two approaches can bring about conformity or obedience. Neither of these approaches actually has lasting effects on people because as soon as the motivation of punishment or reward are reduced or removed, the behavior of that person will very quickly revert back to the way it was. What they have found out, and not surprisingly, because... (laughs) people have been made in the image of God, we still retain something of this image, even though it's corrupted by sin, they they found that a motivation that makes a lasting change has to be internal, not external. They used language like competence, autonomy, and relatedness. Now, they're, they're simply secular terms for ideas that actually originated in the Bible, ideas that are valued us by us as creatures made in the image of God, and they're valued in our world today, in the modern world, particularly in the West, because of the long influence of Christianity. So competence, competence is simply a secular version of character. Which, biblically, character is the person that the Father is making me into as he shapes me into the image of Jesus. Autonomy. Well, that's just the secular version of the biblical idea of liberty, which the Bible speaks of as me being set free from slavery to sin into the status of sonship being a child of God. And I walk in freedom because of the work of the Spirit in me. And relatedness. That's just the secular version of family, which the Bible speaks about us being made a son or a daughter of God and brothers and sisters in the church. So the secular view is that lasting motivation comes not from punishment, not from rewards, but from seeing the intrinsic value of the action itself from the sense of self-fulfillment it gets, it gives me, the feeling that it makes me more whole or more authentically who I should be, um, and the, the way that it helps me to form connections with other the people who bring value into my life. Now, the secular view will always be deficient because it doesn't factor God into the equation. You can only focus ultimately on this short life and nothing else. But as I said, it's not surprising that psychologists have come to that conclusion because of what the Bible says about how we are created. Well, what's the biblical picture then? If you bring God into that, Well, it's this, we see our actions in serving Christ as intrinsically good and valuable because we see him as infinitely good and valuable and deserving of all of the glory and honour that we can give him. Now, that should be enough motivation in itself. Who Jesus is. The reigning, glorious Son of God, but there's more. We're told that the Father has begun that good work in us to make us like Jesus, and He will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. We're guaranteed of this. Our works don't make it happen. Our works don't add to it. It's all the the sovereign work of God. He promises to those whom He foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. Romans 8, 38. Whatever the Father completes, He, whatever, sorry, whatever He begins, He always completes. So that's why each of these letters in Revelation is framed by a portrait of jesus at the beginning and then these promises to the one who conquers at the end the certainty of who jesus is and the certainty of the work he's doing the promises that he makes to us everything in between all the commendations and the criticisms and the judgments and the calls to respond all to be seen in that light of who jesus is and what he's promise to us. The good that's seen in the church is because of the fruit of the Spirit, not our clever strategies or techniques. The critiques and the judgments are loving discipline, designed not to destroy us, but to purify us, to purify his bride, so that he may present us spotless without blemish before himself. So let's look at this letter to the church in Ephesus, you'll see how the letter opens with the portrait of Jesus, how it closes with the promise to the overcomers and how they're related and then what it means for what he says to the church in Ephesus and to us. The Ephesian church is probably the uh, the church with the most references to it in the New Testament. There's a whole chapter in Acts devoted to how the gospel came to Ephesus and through Ephesus to the whole region of Asia. Paul was there for over two years, speaking daily in a local hall. And the gospel had a significant impact on the city and on the region. Now, there are three events in the book of Acts that are good for us to know when we look at this letter to Ephesus. First thing, Was, yes, they're all there. The city was well known for its magical arts. Uh, There were these scrolls called the Ephesian Words, famous scrolls, which contained gibberish. No one has been able to discern whether there's actually a real language on these scrolls, but they claimed that they had magical powers. You just say this gibberish and you'll be able to cast spells and so on. Now, the The Gospel's huge impact on the people of Ephesus led to one occasion when the people who would come to faith in Jesus brought out their scrolls, which were worth millions of dollars in today's terms, and they burned them publicly in this show that they were renouncing the works of darkness and were willing to take a stand for Christ, no matter what the consequences. Now, these magical practices were associated with the worship of the goddess Artemis. Ephesians, uh, sorry, not Ephesians, Ephesus had hosted a temple to Artemis. And this temple was one of the seven wonders, great wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was the goddess uh, in Greek thinking of the, the forests and the hills. She's often depicted with a bow and an arrow with her hunting dogs with her and through uh, her actions she would both help hunters um, but also bring them to harm so if the hunter was successful thanks to artemis if the hunter got mauled by a bear well that was artemis doing that as well her temple contained images of the tree of life she was also the goddess of childbirth. And she was fickle in that role too, so she could be called upon to help pregnant women, but she was also seen as responsible for miscarriages, or if the mother actually died in childbirth. Now do you see that there are some echoes there, even though they're distorted, of Eden. The trees, the forests, like the garden, Uh, the the woman there who's responsible for childbirth. Artemis' worship was a lucrative business. Uh, People would buy these little shrines and statues made out of silver. And as the gospel was growing in Ephesus, a man called Demetrius, a silversmith who made and sold these shrines for Artemis, saw his business under threat, and he started a riot to get these Christians expelled. You can see that in Acts 19. Uh, The third thing is a few months after leaving Ephesus, Paul was returning to Jerusalem and he met with the Ephesian elders of the church to say farewell. He never expected to see them again. And in this meeting, he told them to be on guard against Fierce wolves or dogs that will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So, maybe his reference there to wolves might be an allusion to the dogs of Artemis, whose followers were violently opposing the church. So, with all that background see how jesus presents himself to the church at ephesus in verse one him who holds the seven stars in his right hand
0: who walks
1: among the seven golden lampstands now the lampstands what do they represent If you know the, the lampstands represent the churches the stars represent the angels of the churches which could be literally spiritual angels or could actually be the 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 leaders of those churches. These seven lampstands reflect the seven-stemmed menorah there in the temple. The flames of this menorah represented the presence of God. So the first thing that the Ephesians need to know is that although they live in this city of the great temple of Artemis, they are actually the true temple. the living god god is not in artemis temple god is amongst them his people but there's more symbolism associated with the menorah the design of the tabernacle and the temple was a representation of the garden of eden eden was the very first temple where the man and the woman were installed as priests because of their sin They were expelled, the only way back into the Paradise was to pass through the fiery judgment of the cherubim, the sword of the cherubim at the entrance. So in the Tabernacle, the decorations included images of cherubim, of palms, of flowers and pomegranates. And in this setting, then the menorah with its stem and its seven branches and lamps, which were shaped like flowers, stood in front of the curtain, shielding the most holy place. The menorah spoke of the tree of life. That was in Eden. So as the priests entered the temple, it was a symbolic re-entering into Eden. Before they could approach the holy place, they must first pass through fire by offering a sacrifice on the altar of burnt offering. The fire would purify them and then enable them to approach the life-giving presence of God on behalf of all the people. So the church and the tree of life are connected by this symbolism. The Bible uses a number of tree and plant images, doesn't it, to speak of god's people psalm 1 the person who meditates on god's word is like a tree planted by streams of living water isaiah pictures israel as a stump but out of which grows a shoot which becomes the branch of david the messiah jesus jesus used the fig tree to depict israel who by rejecting him would wither and die And have the kingdom taken away from them. And then Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches, seven branches with the presence of God in each one. We must remain in him if we are to bear fruit.
0: And then in Romans,
1: Paul describes Israel as a cultivated olive tree into which are grafted wild olive branches, the Gentiles who were brought in through the gospel. So in verse 7, the promise to the conqueror to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, it's more than just taking fruit and eating. It actually means to actually be included in the tree, grafted in to become part of the people that God is forming for himself. Or to use the modern image, it's To be fed intravenously so that the very tree of life the life presence the life-giving presence of god himself actually flows continually into our veins jesus is lord and head of the church and he gives us our life as the body and he guarantees that in the new heavens and the new earth of which All of creation will be the paradise of God. We will be forever feeding on Him. We will be permanently planted by streams of living water, sustained forever by His life. Now, that's motivation for us to patiently endure, isn't it? Which is the thing that Jesus emphasizes in verse 2 I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance i know in verse 3 i know you are enduring patiently bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary it seems that uh, they've taken to heart paul's words when he met with the ephesian elders uh, to not tolerate those who falsely claimed to be apostles the, the dogs the wolves now we find out a little bit more about these false apostles in verse 6 they were known as the nicolations now we, we don't know much about these people apart from their name it could be that they were the followers of a man called nicholas but it's worth noting what this word that what the name Nicolaitan, literally means it means the victory people nikos is victory laos his people and Nikos is the same word that Jesus used for the one who conquers, the one with victory. It could be that these people, the Nicolaitans, they were proclaiming a triumphalist prosperity gospel, the same kind of uh, the false apostles that Paul was facing in other places like Corinth, people who claim that God's glory is only manifested in spectacular experiences and miracles with all of the benefits of the new creation of the new heavens and the new earth being experienced today health and wealth and status in this world instead of as we've seen the preaching of the cross in humble self-sacrificial living for jesus even if it means losing health and wealth and status for him. Remember the promise to the true victory people, the one who conquers? All of these things will be given, but not in this life, in their fullness, in the resurrection though, in the new creation, where all of their glory will actually make everything, all the good things we have in this life, pale into insignificance. So Ephesians are a church that is patiently enduring, standing (coughs) firm on the truth of the gospel, not tolerating any false teaching. But there's an inconsistency which threatens their very existence as a church. He says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So their firm knowledge of the truth of the gospel wasn't being expressed in the way that it was in the beginning when the church was in the midst of conflict and opposition, when the riots were happening, opposing them. Their love for Christ then was expressed in that (coughs) public abandonment of magic and the worship of idols. They were standing firm even when the whole city was thrown into chaos in opposition to the gospel so it was a church born out of tribulation as so many of the new testament churches were but it seems that while they had remained strong on that patient endurance part of that description of jesus of life in jesus they had shied away from the tribulation part. There's actually no mention here of them currently facing persecution or hardship like was the case with many of the other churches in the region. Possibly they were a well-established church and they'd become inward-looking, able to look after themselves, able to maintain the status quo amongst themselves without having to interact with the community around them They were focused on guarding and preserving the gospel, but they were losing sight of the call to proclaim the gospel. But true love, true love for Christ, must express itself in a desire to declare his excellencies to the world around us, to seek to glorify his name no matter what the cost, to always have the doors open. To invite in and welcome those who are being drawn to Jesus by uh, the Father. So a genuine love for Christ, which we might sometimes think is just summed up in, we know the gospel and we hold fast to that. Well, it will translate into genuine love for one another and for our neighbour. So here's an irony in how we can operate as a church: we easily switch to that self. Preservation mode, making sure that we have all the systems and all the programs in place that we hope will ensure that we continue to exist as a church and hopefully grow in number. So we focus on getting things right, believing the right things, behaving the right way, which is good, commended by Jesus. But if it's all about maintaining and perpetuating the institution itself, if it's treating the church like a club, or a business, as if bums on seats equals success, then Jesus says that while we may still exist as a group of people who do things together, what does he say? As far as he's concerned, the lampstand has been taken from its place and we're no longer a church in his eyes. As the son of man, we see the son of man who walks among the lampstands, he has the authority to snuff out the flame and remove the lampstand of a church that's lost its first love for Christ. So the Ephesians were right in hating the works of the victory people, the Nicolaitans and their prosperity gospel, but they were in danger of having their own version of the prosperity gospel that saw success in keeping the institution going instead of in living selfless sacrificially in love for Christ and his people and the world so the question for us this morning the question for you as a church the question for my church it's not my church for Jesus church that I work at Do we have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches through this letter to the church in Ephesus? We can be thankful if Jesus' commendations are also true for us, but not in a way that we pat ourselves on the back because we think we've achieved it in our own strength. But we also need to be willing to hear that call to repent. When, if, and when we've fallen short of this first love, this love for Christ that will enable us to you know, love not our lives even unto death. We're at a place in Australia where things are still pretty easy for us Christians, but you know, there's just those little rumblings that we see from time to time in the media of a Christian who has lost their job. Or things, or a church that finds it hard because uh, they stand firm on the word of God. Uh, we need to, we need to know that love of Christ that says, because Christ is my all in all, even if the government says you can't meet as a church, uh, even if your co-worker says you're a hateful bigot because of what you believe about marriage or something else the love for Christ it's the assurance of who he is the assurance of the promises that he makes to us as those who have conquered who will enable us to stand firm and to be faithful to him even through suffering and death now let's pray well Jesus we thank you for the church we thank you that you tell us that you build your church and not us because we are the church Thank you that your word tells us that we are like living stones being built into a temple uh, that that is built up and gives glory to to you and to your Father. We hear these words uh, from you, words of commendation, of promise, of hope, but also words of uh, loving discipline, and we ask that by the power of your spirit you will enable us each individually to examine our hearts, uh, that we might... Uh, know uh, true love for you, uh, but also for us as your people, as a church, uh, both Living Word Bible Church and Bethel Christian Church and all of your various expressions of your church that are meeting in various times and places today. We ask, Father, that as your church, as your people in this city, this state, this nation, you will give us such a love for yourself that we will be willing to Live for your glory in all that we do and say. Amen. Living Word
0: Bible Church, teaching the Bible verse by verse.